Amen. Thank you, Josh. And Josh, we continue to grieve with you and lift you up in prayer. I know it's been a difficult week for you, your friends, your family. And uh, so don't forget, we're here for you. I want to support you in it. One thing I do know about that situation, about uh, Cody's passing, is that the gospel was faithfully preached on Thursday evening. And in that, I rejoice. Cody knew the gospel. Uh, his pastors know the gospel well. And so I'm thankful that they were, on that occasion, able to preach to many people uh, who heard the gospel, maybe some of them for the first time. Uh, so we rejoice in that church. We rejoice even in the midst of that kind of grieving. There are certain things that we like to keep in the rearview mirror, maybe death being one of them, certain things we don't want to remember. We're glad to see that past and want to move forward. You know, I think about the, the pandemic and how we're coming to what seems to be the concluding days of the pandemic, and I'm glad to see a lot of that stuff in the rear view. I figured I'd get a better response than that. Our lives have been turned upside down by a pandemic, especially as a church. And I, for one, am excited to see it passing. I'm excited to see canceled services passing. I'm excited to see the, the hassles of doing online stuff passing. And I hope we never see days like that again. In the rear view, we're glad to put in the rear view and leave them behind, there are also some things we want to look in the rear view and make sure we still remember. And so today I want to take a good look where we've been. We are this morning returning to a series in the book of Jeremiah. And by the way, as you hear a couple of kids making noise, uh, on fifth Sundays we're going to have no nursery just to give people a break. So just a heads up there, if it's a fifth Sunday... We'll have some noisy children. Just bear with them. So today we're going to look back at Jeremiah. We're going to take a look and see where we've been so that we can regain a sense of where we're headed. We started Jeremiah February of 2020. We made it through the first 25 chapters in roughly nine months. And so today... I'm going to do my best to sort of cram all those nine months of sermons together. So it may feel like a whole lot of information today, but I hope for many of you that have heard most of those sermons, it's like, oh yeah, I remember that. Oh, I remember him saying that. I even remember this point or that point. So we're looking in the rear view today in a positive way to get back on track, to revive our thoughts about Jeremiah, to re-engage this wonderful record of God's steadfast mercy. Join with me, Jeremiah 1. We'll just read the first few verses. Jeremiah 1, 1 through 3. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the, Lord, the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Let's pray once more. 
Father, help us as we engage your word today to know you, to enjoy you, to see Christ, uh, to be reminded of all your goodness and faithfulness toward us when we do not deserve it. Father, we're thankful today that we can open the word and think again on Jesus, who took our sin and shame at the cross, dying, being buried, he rose again, and in him we celebrate our victory today. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today is a reintroduction to Jeremiah. And maybe you remember, uh, however many months ago it was, let's see, 16 months, 17 months ago, we started this series with me telling you that you would love studying Jeremiah for a few reasons. Number one was Jeremiah's raw words. And I hope you recall some of those things he said like, When you're reading the Bible and you get to a book like Jeremiah and you see the kind of things he prays, it's like, wow, like I didn't know folks did this. And he wrote some of the Bible. His raw words to me are refreshing because when I get into the the depths of my uh, sin and conflict and struggling, you know, I'm not trying to just say all the right things, the nice things to God or to others. If you're like me, if you're sincerely hurting, then you want to be able to pour it out to God. That's what Jeremiah did. Jeremiah's raw words. I think if you're anything like me, you love to see you're not alone in that. But also we see God's life-giving word. At every point, the people of Judah were sinning against God, and he maintained his faithfulness even while he was disciplining them and gives them the hope of the promise that he made to them, the covenant that he made with them. So Jeremiah's raw words, God's life-giving word, and then thirdly, our desperate need. Our desperate need. We see our own ways clearly in the pages of Jeremiah. Not that we are like Jeremiah, but that we are like the faithless people the rebellious people of Judah. In all God's responses, from his anger to his steadfast love, from his discipline to the glimpses of hope, from total destruction to the promises of restoration, God maintains his covenant with his people, with us believers. We celebrate this today. I just want to remind you of the way that we themed the whole series, the book, in fact. God's covenant carries consequences that bring a remedy remedy for the good of the remnant. God's covenant carries consequences that bring a remedy for the good of the remnant. We established this on the very first sermon back in February of last year. So Jeremiah, by way of review, Jeremiah was called to speak on God's behalf to a people who were headed for a definite collapse. All the under-the-surface sin of God's people was doing irreparable damage, and the only way to remedy the problem was to bring about a captivity. And I want to be clear, uh, historically, this was the Babylonian captivity. Uh, officially, 586 B.C., the people of Judah most of them transported from their homeland and they were transported to Babylon to become captive for 70 some odd 
years. So the Babylonian captivity illustrates for us the captivity of sin. Even before they were transported from their land, Judah was enslaved to sin. Everything looked good on the outside. Josiah had made some reforms, you remember. Everything looked pretty good. Hey, we're doing well. God is blessing. Nothing is wrong. Nobody's attacking. People are, they look, they look like they're being faithful to God. But under the surface, as Jeremiah was prophesying, there were things that were not being dealt with. And so the captivity only made it undeniable and ultimately produced a remnant after generations that were renewed in faith and in their devotion to the one true God. So as we walk through this, I'm going to be flipping pages. Uh, I don't expect you to follow. Uh, If you're taking notes, I would just write down these references if you want to review it at some point. But I liken today in my mind to skipping rocks, okay? So if we can say we've sort of made it halfway across the pond in Jeremiah, and now we're looking back at the shore, we're looking back at where we've been, and we're skipping rocks. So I'm giving you basically seven skips of the rock today. Seven skips through the first half of Jeremiah. First off, I want to show you Jeremiah showed us the end of ourselves. Jeremiah showed us the end of ourselves. And this comes from chapter 4 and 5. Really on behalf of God, Jeremiah brings us to the end of ourselves to show us our own brokenness, our own hopelessness, but also to get us to embrace God's perspective in the matter. I want to read chapter 4. Verses 13 through 18. Behold, he comes up like clouds, his chariots like a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil, that you may be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims trouble from Mount Ephraim. Warn the nations that he is coming. Announce to Jerusalem, besiegers come from a distant land. They shout against the cities of Judah. Like keepers of a field, they are against her all around because she has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Verse 18, your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom and it is bitter. It has reached your very heart. So we get some of this language about coming captivity, captivity that is, is coming from Babylon, but is coming by the hand of God. And he shows us what we have done to uh, incur this captivity. In these verses, he talks about our evil hearts. 17.9 says the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can know it? So the source of who we are, do y'all see this? The source of who we are is corrupted with the poison of sin. We're bent to sin. Just this week, uh, we did a a brief little trip, spent some time with my in-laws, and uh, in the morning, we're getting ready for breakfast, and they start cooking, and and all of a sudden, there's this, this horrid smell, terrible smell. And so, like, everybody in the family 
is, is like walking around, sniffing, and trying to locate the source of the smell. We're thinking, if it's not like raw sewage, then it's got to be something really bad, like waste of some kind, trash of some kind. And the more we searched, the more we realized that this stench was coming from meat that had just come out the package. The meat had gone bad. It is spoiled. And if y'all have been around spoiled meat, you know that that can be a pretty bad stench. So it wasn't the trash. It wasn't, it wasn't what we expected it to be. It was coming from the supposedly good food. It was coming from the source. That's how it is with us. We oftentimes as human beings, we don't recognize what is in our hearts. And when we get a glimpse of that, according to God's word, we see, man, the stench all along has been me. It's been me. He shows us our evil hearts. He shows us our wicked thoughts. The evidence of that corruption that we just talked about is plastered all over the human mind. If we could flip through the picture book of your thoughts and my thoughts just this week, we could escape nothing of our corruption. Evil hearts, wicked thoughts, and then he says rebellious deeds. Over and over again. Jeremiah is showing us the end of ourselves. If this is the way you want to go, this is where you will end up. Your rebellious deeds will manifest. This is what James calls giving birth to sin. God says those sinful deeds have brought about this judgment. He says it's reached your very heart. The rebellion is a cycle. You see how it works? You can track this in your own lives. It's a cycle. Sin always gets a little easier the next time. The next time comes and you're a little more comfortable. You're a little more okay with it. You're a little more invested in it. And I'll be honest, folks, we got, we got deep issues I laugh a little on the inside when somebody comes to me with something that they feel like is just almost unforgivable. And they tell me, and I'm like, look, I cannot be surprised at your sin because I know mine is horrendous. And I will say, you're just like one of us. We're all in this together, dealing with that corruption, dealing with that evil deed, that deep issue. Evil hearts, wicked thoughts, rebellious deeds. Jeremiah shows us over and over again. All of this to show us, hey, you can't understand God's point of view until you come to the end of yourself. This is what Jeremiah does. He showed us the end of ourselves and continues to do so. Also, Jeremiah exposed our self-deception. Moving up to Jeremiah 7. He exposed our self-deception. Just a few verses here. Jeremiah 7 and verse 8. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal? And go after other gods that you have not known. And then come 
and stand before me in this house, the temple, which is called by my name and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Jeremiah exposed our self-deception. You may recall me saying these very words. Self-deception creates immunity to the truth. But honesty creates sensitivity to the truth. So there was, a, there was a disconnect between the way the people operated in the temple and in life versus what was actually going on in their hearts. They had built their lives around false assurances. We are delivered. They were believing all the deception. We are delivered. Verses 9 and 10. We need to get, as we apply these ideas of self-deception, we don't need the kind of false assurance that they have. We need full assurance that comes through faith. In these verses, he points them to the horizontal commandments of the ten and summarizes the vertical violation of the ten in their idolatry, as he just said it. It's as if they've taken God's law and ripped it up, and then they showed up at church and had some nice talks about how they were saved. We are delivered, is what they would tell one another. Oh, are you, you delivered? You saved? Oh, I am too. How awesome is that? And then we return to the wickedness of our ways. This is the epitome of hypocrisy. When we speak of our salvation while deliberately walking contrary to God's law, we are lying to ourselves. We are eating up the deception. And worse than a virus, this is the pandemic of modern Christianity. And as we made application the first time, I would say the worst outbreak is in the Bible Belt. So how do we have full assurance? Hebrews 10.22 tells us, upon gospel truth. The good news that Christ died and rose again for our salvation. So it says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You get both the the sanctification or the, the consecration of serving God and the benefit of not living with the weight of guilt and shame. So if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus and your life is characterized by guilt and shame, You're not embracing the promises and you're believing a lie. But if you're not a believer and you're living with guilt and shame, you need Jesus. He's the only way that your conscience will be relieved. We need this full assurance, but we cannot deceive ourselves as they did. There was a false assurance. They also assessed themselves falsely. He says, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? They claim the temple to be a place of safety amid invasion. 
They said, this is what it is. God said, this is what I made it for. You, uh, you ever have that, those moments where, super embarrassing for me, but when words come out that all along you thought this is what they meant, and in reality this is what they meant? I recall one time, maybe one of the more embarrassing moments of my married life. Um, and sometimes I, I hesitate to use words because I'm scared. I'm not sure I know what that means. I remember talking to my wife, and I said something about a relationship being plutonic. So uh, in my mind, I suppose it was plutonic as in it was radioactive or something, <laughs> like some plutonium was involved. And then she laughs at me and corrects me and says, Matt, it's, it's platonic, like the philosopher Plato. Platonic. It's purely spiritual, nothing physical. So there was the right way to understand it, and then there was my way, which I thought all along, and it was the wrong way. These people thought, hey, we're good in the temple because God has made this promise, but they did not address their sin. God looks upon their condition while they think everything is all right. What was supposed to be a sanctuary for him was a den of robbers. And even though their eyes were laid on it, they could not see it. This was no safe place. It could no longer provide refuge or safety for those who sought it. The temple of the Lord had become an object of his judgment. Kidner says here, let man take it over and God will have left it. And this is exactly what Jesus meant when he referenced this verse, Matthew 21, saying, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And then in 23, he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. And he says, see, your house is left to you desolate. We've got to assess this self-deception correctly. So Jeremiah exposed our self-deception, and he continues to do so. Thirdly, Jeremiah taught us to lament. Chapter 8, verses 18 through 21. <clears throat> Jeremiah confessing, grieving. He says, my joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold, the city of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and their foreign idols? The harvest is past. The summer is ended and we are not saved. For the wound Of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded, said Jeremiah. I mourn and dismay has taken hold on me. There's a couple of notes about lamentation. I think Jeremiah showed us and continues to show us. True lamenting, true lamentation must be sourced by a sincere burden. The kind of lamenting we see from Jeremiah here shows us what a sincere burden looks like. Jeremiah is known for his lamentation so well that there's a word in the dictionary called a Jeremiad. 
is defined as a long, mournful complaint or lamentation. But don't write Jeremiah off as a complainer. I think you'd miss the lesson there. Jeremiah loves his people deeply, and he loves the Lord even more deeply. And it's seen in the constant refrain, the daughter of my people. It's important to him. It's familial for for him. The depth of this burden comes across as painful sometimes as it does here in these verses. I would tell you today, if you don't spend time in lamentation, do you have this kind of care for people or situations? Your burden needs to drive your ministry. So when you see the condition of others, when you see how it affects them, it's going to affect you in deep ways. So Jeremiah was overcome by grief. He was emptied of joy. He was heartsick about the condition of his people. We need to learn that lamentation. But it's also a, it's a lamenting that's charge of God. The Lord replies to their question in these verses, why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and foreign idols? True limitation over lostness and unbelief must be directly tied to the fact that a holy God has been sinned against. So until that offense is dealt with, no restoration will take place. This is what Jeremiah, or excuse me, David said in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. And that's not his effort to downplay the offenses, effects on others, but it's meant to address the supreme one, the infinitely more important matter of offending a sovereign God. In this case, the people talk past one another without engaging the issues. And God's question replies and indicates that it's their responsibility to handle their own repentance. Fourthly, from chapter 13, Jeremiah emphasized the shame of rebellion. The shame of rebellion. You may recall, we went through a few pictures of shame. There was a spoiled garment. There was deep darkness. There was humiliated royalty. And the one that we'll recap today, there is a drunken demise. Chapter 13, verses 12 through 14. You shall speak to them this word, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, every jar shall be filled with wine and they will say to you, do we not indeed know that every jar will be filled with wine? Then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I will fill with drunkenness all the inhabitants of this land the king who sits on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will dash them one against another. Fathers and sons together, declares the Lord. I will not pity or spare or have compassion that I should not destroy them. So the Lord uses a saying apparently known to the people. Every jar shall be filled with wine. Now think for a moment on the fact that the Lord is a potter. We are jars of clay, earthen vessels to be used as he intends. So the jars are the people in these verses. And he says, every jar shall be filled with wine. And then we would say, and they said, that's a good thing, right? We're all all filled with wine. 
Do we not indeed know that every jar shall be filled with wine? We're God's people. We're going to be blessed. So the prospect seems good because it means that the fields are producing, the harvest is plentiful, the prosperity fills the land, and then they arrogantly presume that this is their future. We're the chosen people. Of course, we'll prosper. God made covenant with us. We're immune to other nations. We have God's law. We're closer to God. Heritage, heroes, the holy city, of course, will be filled with wine. And then God says, every person from the greatest to the least will be brought into a drunken stupor. And when they think that they are reaping the benefits of being God's people, they are actually approaching destruction. And I will dash them against one another. Is what he says. I imagine most of us have witnessed this kind of drunken belligerence. There's nothing and no one that is safe. Destruction ensues, but a whole city of people in such a state. Is this not a clear commentary on our society? Is it not also a commentary on the condition of the people of God at times? We join factions, we separate, we devour those who we call brother and sister in Christ, but for what? For a preference, for an agenda, to feel superior. We bask in the world's problems, we consume its doctrine, and then we wonder why our message falls on deaf ears. They say the Christian gospel doesn't transform. Look at them. Look at them. They do exactly like we do. They fight like we fight. They devour one another like we devour one another. They separate like we separate. We tribalize just like we do. And he says, you'll be dashed against one another, fathers and sons and the like. It's the same kind of sinful division that Paul warned about in Corinth. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter. This cannot characterize the church of the Lord Jesus. And so in this case, and in many cases, the arrogance they have replaces what would be a blessing with a curse. So Jeremiah emphasized the shame of rebellion. You see how quiet it got all of a sudden? No air conditioner, and the kids are calm. Five, Jeremiah described also God's sculpting purposes. And this is from chapters 18 and 19. God's sculpting purposes. Gives us reminders of the, the work that God's doing. We noted God's work will happen. So while awaiting God's word, Jeremiah gets to see the way a potter works, working it in the potter's hands. And we see from his account, the pot spoils as it's being shaped. A blemish is revealed. It dries too quickly. There's a thin spot. There's a rough spot. It's not turning out like he wanted. So he reworks it as it seems good to the potter, according to Jeremiah's word. 
Have you ever considered that the people of God, that you, Christian, are such in the hands of God? There's great comfort in knowing that God devotes this kind of attention to detail in order to bring his people to the place where he wants them to be. His work will happen. And he won't accept any opposition. Read with me from chapter 18, verses 13 through 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, ask among the nations, who has heard the like of this? The virgin Israel has done a very horrible thing. Does the snow of Lebanon leave the crags of Syrian? Do the mountains, mountain waters run dry? the cold flowing streams, but my people have forgotten me. They make offerings to false God. They, they made them stumble in their ways, in the ancient roads, and to walk into side roads, not the highway, making their land a horror, a thing to be hissed at forever. Everyone who passed by it is horrified and shakes his head. Like the east wind, I will scatter them before the enemy, I will show them my back and not my face in the day of their calamity. God won't accept any opposition. Who has done anything like this? The word pictures here are unique and puzzling, maybe. Yet they're an expression of what is unnatural or outrageous. God has been the one faithful in preserving them, yet they have abandoned him. They go after other lovers making offerings to false gods. They reap the consequences. They stumble in their ways, convincing them that the ancient roads, the ways that we were taught, were the real problem. Jeremiah has already pleaded with them in the past. In chapter 6, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk in it. God's work will happen and he won't accept opposition. He will see his word through chapter 19 and verse 10. He gives another image, an illustration for us, a flask. So Jeremiah was to take a flask in verse 10. He says, you shall break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you. And then verse 15 He says, thus said the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon this city, upon its towns, the disaster that I have pronounced against it because they have stiffened their neck, refusing to hear my words. So God makes it clear from the scriptures that he will protect his word at every point. Not one occasion of speaking his word will fall short or fall flat or be wasted. Jesus says, not one jot or tittle will pass away, right? The psalmist writes, and Peter repeats, the word of the Lord will stand forever. It's the two-edged sword that lays everything bare. The creative power, there's not one misstep. The regenerating power, he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. The hardening power, he will harden whom he will harden. His word will not be forgotten. His word won't be forsaken. His judgments will be executed. His promises will be fulfilled. And all of this in his son, Jesus. His word has come in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And just like Paul says, all the word that came through him finds its yes and amen. God will see his word through. So Jeremiah describes God's sculpting purposes. Number six, Jeremiah modeled true intimacy with God. Jeremiah modeled true intimacy with God. Chapter 20, verses 1 through 4, one of the priests named Pasher says, Now Pasher, the priest, the son of Immer, who was chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Then Pasher beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. The next day, when Pasher released Jeremiah from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, The Lord does not call your name Pasher, but terror on every side. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. They shall fall by the sword of their enemies while you look on. And I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon. He shall carry them captive to Babylon and strike them down with the sword. Jeremiah gets put in stocks and he comes out still speaking God's judgment. But he endured a lot. Carried on a ministry of deep suffering. He continued to speak against the establishment of temple worship in that day. And even in stocks, spoke against the temple leadership. But this is what Jesus warned about all his followers. They're going to hate you for my name's sake. Paul wrote to Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But it only emboldened Jeremiah, making him more resolute to speak on God's behalf, more resolute in his calling. But it also made the prayer closet fierce for Jeremiah. Hear what he says. Oh, Lord, verse 7, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout, violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. If I say I will not mention him or speak anymore in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot. He prays these gut-wrenching prayers. Bregeman says here, Jeremiah admits the power of God, right here, by acknowledging the terrible situation in which he finds himself. In his mind, in his mind, prayers are the only way to handle this conflict. He says, Ultimately, God is behind my suffering. This is God's doing. And it's reminiscent of Job 9. He says, if it's a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. That is, God is mighty. If it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? So I'm telling you, I'm not saying Job or Jeremiah are right in what they were doing. I'm saying that they did it. And it led them to the conclusion that they must abide in him. So what I tell you, he already knows your thoughts. 
He already knows your thoughts. He already knows your sin better than you do. So why not go ahead and lay it bare before him? Put it at his throne. A lot of Christians go through undesirable seasons, maybe even just minimal suffering, and they give God the silent treatment. They think, I'll just ignore it. I'm not going to think about it. Maybe find some worldly escape and hope that the season ends soon, all the while their spirit is emptied of joy. It's dying on the vine because they will not abide in him. But to the one who wrestles with God in prayer, to the one who presses in in the midst of pain, there is sweet relief in the remembrance of his promise. Verses 11 through 13, But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed, for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts who test the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them. For to you I have committed my cause. And verse 13, sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of the evildoers. If you're going through something, don't just give up. Don't just give half effort until you get through it. Press in like Jeremiah does. And I would say like Jesus does. In that garden, when the weight of sin is upon him, he's being pressed to the point of bleeding through his pores. And he pleads out to the Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will. That's intimacy with God. Jeremiah modeled it. And then seventh, finally, the last skip for today, chapter 23. Jeremiah exalted the source of our righteousness. Jeremiah exalted the source of our righteousness. 23 verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This fact right here is why we titled the series A Righteous Remnant. So we've got to ask the question, where does our righteousness come from? Where does our righteousness come from? If you look through this entire book, you could never come to the conclusion that the people of God just need to be a little better than they were. They don't need to just be more spiritual or make better decisions. They don't need to just obey more. And that's the failure of so many who come to the knowledge of the gospel. They walk away thinking, man, I just got to do better. No. The point of this book 
The point of scripture is to show you that you will never measure up to God's standard. And you are in desperate need of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way that you can be made acceptable to God is that his righteous life be credited to your account and all your sin paid for at the cross. This is the essence of the gospel. So he says right here, from David's family tree, a righteous branch would emerge. I love this language. From the stump of Jesse, Isaiah 9. To the world, this branch may look like the tree from Charlie Brown Christmas. To the saints of God, this branch would be the tree under whose limbs many come and find shade and safety and relief. Do you remember what Jesus said about the kingdom of God? It's like that little seed, when it's planted and take root, produces branches. All the birds come and find their home there. This is the kingdom. If you're a Christian, this is where we live, in this tree, in this righteous branch. So when it comes time to enter God's throne room, The case cannot be made on your righteousness because you are a sinner deserving of punishment. The only case can be made on the righteousness of Jesus. The righteous branch reigns in wisdom, executes justice, bringing eternal salvation. He is our righteousness. In context here, this is a play on the king's name. The king's name is Zedekiah, which is the Lord is righteous. And so Jeremiah, when he speaks about the Lord, our righteousness, he's saying it's not just that he is righteous, but he gives us his righteousness. Romans 1.17, righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Romans 3.26, God justifies, that is, he makes righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. The righteousness of Jesus is given to us by faith, and we are forever secure in him. Who is there to condemn or accuse? No one. There is, therefore, now no condemnation. We have Jesus pleading his own blood and righteousness on our behalf. Jeremiah exalted the source of our righteousness, and he continues to do so. So as we conclude, I just want to give you some encouragement these days ahead. We're going to be returning to Jeremiah 26 next week. These next few chapters... Jeremiah is interestingly not going to be the one telling us the story. There's now a third party. It could possibly be uh, Baruch, his scribe. But we're getting the story from a different perspective, the, the, the narrative from an onlooker. And we're going to approach chapter 29. Maybe you're familiar. 29 gives us a big dose of the hope that we need. And helps us in some wonderful instructions for our daily lives now. So I hope that, if nothing else, 
you who have heard some of these sermons over the past, well, over February to October of 2020, hopefully you can revive your thoughts of Jeremiah. You can revive your study of Jeremiah. Jeremiah showed us the end of ourselves. He exposed our self-deception. He taught us to lament. He emphasized the shame of our rebellion. He described God's sculpting purposes, and he modeled true intimacy with God. But I would say most of all, he exalted and he continues to exalt the source of our righteousness, which is Jesus. So in response today, you may say, hey, all this time I thought I was just supposed to be a generally good person in order to go to heaven. Well, I'm telling you today that you're sorely mistaken and you're headed for hell apart from Jesus. Repent of sin, believe on Jesus, and the Bible says you will be saved. That's an open invitation. Anybody who believes, the Bible says, will be saved. Give your heart to him, give your life to him, let him run it, and your, your life will be headed toward God's perfect purposes in the kingdom of Christ. Maybe it's time to respond in repentance, believer, as we reopen this book, we reconsider our condition, reconsider what God purposes to do both in our salvation and in our discipline. Let's respond to the word of God. Pray with me. Father, we are blessed to open your word again, blessed to hear the name of Jesus again. 